Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, we've set sail and started on our anxiety and depression literature review on steroids. The goal here is, uh, you know, if you have anxiety or depression, or if you know someone that's affected by it, and they go to a practitioner a lot of practitioners may only know, you know, a small percentage of all the possible treatments. And what if we're able to gather using thousands of different sources, you know, 20% of all the treatments that are out there? It may be a big home run for the community of sufferers. So to find out more about the effort, to donate, to again, find out more, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And today, my guest is Nicole Cross. Uh, she's an associate psychologist, part of the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Associates of Denver. And we're going to talk about her work. So, Nicole, thanks for coming. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, you know, I know the field of mental health is very big and expansive, but what's your focus within your practice? So, in particular, I tend to focus on substance and behavioral addictions, on anxiety disorders, and on eating disorders. And all of those are sort of <laughs> related together. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess, you know, probably a lot of listeners would be familiar with, let's say, anorexia or bulimia. What are the most common eating disorders you deal with? And, you know, what are some of the difficult aspects of working with people that have them? Great question. So um, anorexia and bulimia are absolutely some of the most common. Some other common ones would be binge eating disorder and ARFID, which stands for Avoidant and Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. I think that overall, probably the biggest challenge is that most eating disorders tend to be about avoidance. And what that means is someone has either a thought that's distressing or a physical sensation that's distressing, an emotion that's distressing, and eating disorder behaviors allow you to to basically not be present with that experience. And so what's challenging about working with them is that you're essentially asking someone to sit with a painful experience. And it's just really, really hard to do that. And typically people have to have really good motivation to be willing to do that. 
What do you mean you're asking them to sit with their experience? What is it? You mean to talk about it or to consider it or deal with it? Both talking about it, experiencing it within themselves, for example. So let's say that someone has, let's say that someone has bulimia and they have, I don't know, a history of family conflict with one of their parents, let's say, and it's really painful for them for various reasons. And, um, you know, let's say they have a phone conversation with that parent and it doesn't go well and they're experiencing pain. You know, they're feeling maybe anxiety, maybe they're feeling anger, maybe they're feeling guilt or shame, maybe they're feeling sadness. All of those emotions are not just uncomfortable, but can be painful. And for someone who has bulimia, they might be tempted to binge and purge as a way to not have to be as present with those experiences, meaning it doesn't have to be top of mind and it doesn't have to be something that they feel like is overwhelming. It's the eating disorder behavior is in a way a distraction and avoidance behavior that allows them to sort of not be with that emotional experience for a period of time. And so when we're working with people who experience these things, part of the process is noticing when you have an urge to use those behaviors in order to escape some uncomfortable thought, feeling, emotion. And instead of using the behavior, we're asking them, you know, let's try not using the behavior. And maybe instead, can you sit? Can you pay attention to your breath? Can you attend to a different focus object? Or perhaps even can you talk to someone about how you're feeling? Can you journal about how you're feeling and sort of stay present with and be with your emotional experience rather than trying to move away from it? Yeah, I guess I didn't consider anxiety and bulimia, I thought, which is ever present, but I'm sure if someone's stressed, what does it do to those conditions? Does it cause them to do them more, do them more intensely, or to finally like hurt themselves with them? Like what, what's the interaction of stress with these kind of conditions? Yeah, that's also a good question. So uh, with eating disorders, which in my mind are kind of a behavioral addiction and with other behavioral addictions like online gaming addiction, pornography, gambling, and with substance addiction, stress is, is going to increase the severity of all of them. So the more stress stress someone is under, the more urges they're probably going to have to use their avoidance behaviors because stress is uncomfortable and we don't want to be present with discomfort. Oh, so again, when someone's stressed, does it significantly heighten these behaviors or increase their frequency or does it cause additional behaviors to pile on top of it? Like, you know, someone's anorexic and now they become OCD because of this persistent stress. You know, are there any additional like sequelae from stress? Yeah, both of those things could happen. So certainly when someone is under a lot of stress, uh, we would anticipate that their behaviors might be more frequent. And this happens a lot around the holidays in therapy, you know, like getting ready for the holidays. We do a lot of preparation uh, with distress tolerance skills because we sort of know or expect that people are going to be under more stress during that time compared to another. And sometimes during periods of extreme stress, people can develop other avoidance behaviors. You know, maybe someone initially had an avoidance behavior as primarily an eating disorder, but during a period of acute stress, maybe now they also getting into a substance or maybe now, as you said, they develop sort of compulsive behaviors that allow them to feel at least in the short term, less distressed. You know, so what, what happens uh, during the holidays in your practice? You know, does the, the workload suddenly intensify? Do people, I mean, do they regress? Like what happens to your patient population as you approach? I would say both, both 
both of those things happen. So during the holidays, we definitely expect for people to be meeting with us more frequently than than they do at other times. We certainly expect for them to be under more stress and for their symptoms to kind of temporarily increase. And I would say overall, we're in our practice, we tend to be busier (laughs) for those two reasons. So what are some of the techniques that uh, you use to help people? You know, do you have them journal and diary and like characterize their, you know, their anorexia or bulimia or, you know, how they're feeling? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, something that I tend to do with a lot of my clients is something called an event log or an emotion log. And essentially what we're trying to do is just bring more awareness to the behavior chain that goes with a symptom. So typically with a symptom, we have an urge, but before that, there is an antecedent and we break those down into two different types. One would be an immediate antecedent and one would be an earlier antecedent. So in the example that I gave before for someone who is struggling with bulimia, the immediate antecedent in that example was that they had a stressful phone call with one of their parents. And so that's sort of the thing that lights the match on the emotional experience. It activates the distress. Uh, there's a spike and then they have an urge to use a symptom to sort of get away from that painful experience. But there are also earlier antecedents, which can be things that set them up to have either that intensity of emotion or that type of emotional experience um, that happened before the eliciting event occurred. And that could be almost anything. It could be that they didn't get good sleep the night before. It could be that they got into an argument with a coworker the week before. It could be that they, I don't know, let's say they have a weekly Scrabble game and they lost three times in a row and they're upset about that. Anything that contributes to the intensity, it would be an earlier antecedent. And so in the event log or the emotion log, I ask people to track how intense their distress was in the moment, usually using a zero to 10 scale. I ask them to give a label for the emotional experience, and it could be more than one. So they could say anxiety, or they could say anxiety and guilt and sadness. It could be three or four or five. And then I have them identify the immediate antecedent and the earlier antecedent with the immediate antecedent, like I said, being sort of the match that gets lit in the moment and the earlier antecedent being kind of like gasoline that's poured on the ground that contributes to how big the fire becomes. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. And then I asked them to track their urge. You know, did you have an urge or didn't you? And if it's an eating disorder, it would be, did you have an urge to restrict? Did you have an urge to binge and purge? If it's a substance use behavior, it would be, did you have an urge to use the substance? If it's a behavioral addiction, did you have the urge to gamble, whatever it is? And then if they did the behavior to log that they did it, and then whether or not they use the behavior to log whatever coping skill they chose to use in the moment, either during the urge or after they did the behavior. And that coping skill, can be a lot of different things. There are so, so, so many coping skills. I usually like to break coping skills into groups based on the intensity of your distress. 
So for me, there are certain coping skills that go with really intense distress, and there are others that go with moderate, and there are still others that go with low-level distress. What interesting things pop up in it? You know, do the patients say like, oh, now that I'm looking at this, I didn't realize X, Y, or Z, or do you see you know, repeated patterns or interesting elements in the diaries that help people? Yeah, absolutely. I think definitely it's interesting. Most patients tend to find, you know, discoveries or realizations when they're completing their journal, like, oh, you know, I didn't think this really affected me, but I guess it really did. And often, as you said, patterns come out in terms of what the immediate antecedents tend to be and what the earlier antecedents tend to be. Like one client might realize that, oh, wow, you know, every time I have a phone call with my dad, I tend to have urges to binge and purge. Or they might find that, you know, over the past week, all of the times that I didn't get good sleep, when I experienced a stressor the next day, I had a really intense urge. So does that help next time that it happens? Or is it just like, you know, they have to recognize it and they have to sit with that for a period of, you know, times or events that it happens and then they can do something about it? Or is the, is the fix pretty quick? It tends to be pretty quick with the, um, with the emotion log, people tend to have realizations pretty fast and are therefore able to change their behavior pretty fast. So that could be, that could be a lot of different things. Maybe they know that on days where they're going to have phone conversation with their dad, maybe they make a plan to do a self-care activity immediately after every time, or maybe they make a plan to go for a walk with a friend immediately after, because they know that that's sort of a high risk time for them. They're kind of proactively using a skill to decrease the risk of using a behavior. And just knowing what their triggers are over time can help them sort of set up their life in a way that maybe is less stressful or improves their quality of life. Like maybe they decide that they want to have more structure around how many times they communicate with their parent per week or how long the phone conversation is. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So major and minor triggers or antecedents, as you call them, how many do people tend to have for a given condition? Um, it could be one and it could be a hundred. It really differs depending on the person. I would say that the most people tend to have, well, it's so hard to put a number to it, but I would say most people have, you know, somewhere between two and 10 specific triggers that tend to reoccur, but it could be a random trigger that happens to just be a trigger for them on that given day. And it might never occur as a trigger again. So when someone says, uh, when someone does a diary, how much of the diary is, you know, I got, I had an episode where I binged and purged. I just don't know why. And then do you have to delve deeper if that happens or is it yeah, pretty absolutely. clearly apparent early on? I would say that that happens a lot. You know, it definitely depends on the person's level of insight and how how introspective they tend to be, but it also depends on their um, experience with treatment and their experience with therapy. You know, if this is their third time in therapy and their past two times they were in therapy for two years each, they probably have a lot of uh, existing understanding about what tends to be triggers for them. So in that case, filling out the emotion log, they might sort of discover things pretty fast. For someone who's never been in therapy before, they might not have ever thought about the idea that antecedents could be connected to their urges and behaviors. And so for them, they very well might say, you know, I, I binged and purged last night and I still don't really know why. And if that's the case, that's fine. And in therapy, we would sort of like dig around and try to figure it out. Is your goal to get them to zero uh, events or is it just to reduce it? I mean, what, what does a therapy look like in you know, I know it's different for everybody, but, you know, do you allocate like six months or a year to, 
for someone to make, you know, a significant process or does it take years sometimes? Like, what have you observed? Yeah, it really depends. And in part, the question that you're asking is sort of related to this idea of whether a moderation model or an abstinence only model is better for a given person, particularly with substances in the past, it used to be that abstinence only was, was the only form of treatment and it was the only acceptable outcome. And luckily, over the past several years, that's been changing. And now non-abstinence-only treatments are becoming more accepted and viewed as legitimate. And so for alcohol, let's say, someone someone might decide, you know what, I just can't ever drink at all. And that feels better for me. That feels safer for me. I feel more self-efficacy with that. And if so, that would be a totally fine goal for them. Another person might say, you know, I, I don't want to pursue abstinence only. I want to be able to drink in moderation. I want to be able to go to a wedding and have two drinks. And in, if that's the case, then we're not looking for no behaviors. We're, we're working toward a moderation model. That being said, we want to make sure that the behaviors are not motivated, like we talked about before, by a desire to avoid an uncomfortable experience, because that sort of leads you back down the path of becoming dependent on the behavior, but rather engaging the behavior because they want to, you know, not for escape. Are there certain conditions where it has to be all or nothing? Like anorexia, can you partially help somebody and that's enough? Or you have to go all the way? You know, same thing for bulimia and some of these other disorders. Eating disorders, you tend to have to go all the way. And I think part of that is because food is unavoidable. Like with something like alcohol or like cocaine, let's say, it's possible for someone to say, I'm never going to have alcohol in my life ever again. But with an eating disorder, we can't just say, you know, I'm just going to cut food out of my life completely. We, we have to eat to live. And so because of that, it's always going to be some form of moderation. In my experience, someone is not going to be able to recover from an eating disorder if they continue to use eating disorder behaviors, even if it's infrequent. Because when we're using eating disorder behaviors as a way to avoid our emotional experience, we end up feeling like we need that behavior in order to get through a difficult time. And so if I don't have the distress tolerance skills and I don't have the self-efficacy to be able to sit with my experience and cope without that behavior, inevitably when something comes up that's really hard and really stressful, I'm going to feel like I just need to use that behavior that I've been dependent on for however long. And so I think with eating disorders, it really is necessary to not use the behaviors at all. In terms of uh, root causes, do any of these conditions have, uh, you know, like a quantified set of root causes or are they all over the map? Absolutely can be all over the map. Um, That being said, both eating disorders and uh, substance and behavioral addictions tend to co-occur with the experience of trauma. And that makes sense, you know, because the disorder is fundamentally about avoiding a painful experience. And with trauma, I mean, the trauma is a painful experience, but then the symptoms that someone has for months, years, however long after are also painful experiences. It could be panic attacks. It could be reliving. It could be nightmares. It could be intrusive thoughts. And so I would say that trauma certainly is reliably related to to both substance use and behavioral addictions and eating disorders. So when a trauma happens, does it typically immediately lead to to an eating disorder or is it years down the road? Are the events like in the person's mind easily linked or are they sometimes like 
I don't know why I just started doing this and now I've been doing it for two years. Either one, really. And sometimes a trauma is a single occurrence, you know, like someone is in a really terrible car accident, let's say. And so the trauma happens one time and then afterwards they're having, you know, hypervigilance and they're reliving the experience. They have intrusive thoughts or flashbacks or whatever. And in that case, the person would probably quickly link the two. But other traumas occur over a period of time, often years and years. You know, someone might have a history of physical, emotional, sexual abuse in childhood that went on for years. And in that case, it's going to be harder to link because usually then the avoidance behaviors develop over time as sort of like a survival mechanism. And it can just be harder overall to link in those cases, because it's a little more pervasive. So what, what elements of the therapy you do, I don't know, are you still testing or is, do you pretty much have a proven system you feel like with most people on what you're going to do? I think a little bit of both. So at CBT Denver, Cognitive Behavior uh, Therapy Associates of Denver, we always use um, evidence-based practices, which means that any treatment modality we're using is going to be something that is well-researched and proven to be effective for the addition. And within that, I think there's some room for figuring out what works best for what person. So in general, I'm going to be using some sort of evidence-based treatment that could be dialectical behavior therapy. It could be traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. It could be um, acceptance and commitment therapy. It could be unified protocol. Either way, I'm going to start from a foundation of one of those evidence-based therapies. And then once we kind of get that going... It might turn out that a certain DBT skill fits really well for someone, even though we're mostly doing ACT or vice versa. And so you can play around and kind of mix and match in terms of what is a best fit for the person. But in terms of the overall treatment, we kind of know already what we're getting into. Well, what are some of the areas that are still unexplored that keep you interested? What are the frontiers of this look like? That's such a good question. I think one that is currently being explored, but I think absolutely there's more to explore, would be psychedelic-assisted therapies. For a while, we weren't really able to research those uh, because of how the government classified substances. But what we know and what we're starting to know now is that certain substances like ketamine and psilocybin, MDMA, um, are tend to be so helpful and can be so helpful in certain types of therapies. You know, so with ketamine, I think depression, MDMA, I think trauma, psilocybin, I think both and a lot of things. And so I think that is going to be a field that we see a lot of results in, in the coming years. One, because we haven't really been able to research it before, but two, because I think that people are starting to view it as, as legitimate and starting to really appreciate the research that's beginning to show how helpful they can be. Is it legal in uh, Colorado or in Denver? I know in Oregon, I guess, you know, it is, but uh, I don't know if it's come to a, a neighborhood near you yet. Yeah, so I'm not super knowledgeable about this, but I can tell you that ketamine treatment is available in Colorado uh, and in Denver. I don't think that psilocybin treatment is yet. I do know that there are uh, like research groups who are studying it where people in the context of a research study are getting treated. Like for example, off the top of my head at Johns Hopkins, they have research center where they're examining psilocybin assisted therapy. And so you could, people could get treated with psilocybin or MDMA or whatever in the context of research. But to my knowledge, I don't think that those two are available for treatment in Denver, at least not right now. 
right. And then uh, do you guys do any telemedicine or is it just for local folks in Denver? Like who's your community? So we are doing uh, both. So we see absolutely people in the Denver area, but really since, since COVID, we have been doing a lot of teletherapy at first because we had to, but then more recently, since things have been opening up over the past few months, people have been able to come back in person and some people have chosen to do that. But some other people have said, teletherapy is really convenient for me, actually. And I I would prefer to stay home and do this to be able to just open my computer from my kitchen table and go to therapy and then continue with my day. I would say for me, I'm probably at about a third of my caseload in person and two thirds teletherapy. The other thing that's nice is now we have something called SIPAC, which is an agreement between uh, all the participating states that allows therapists or a psychologist who's been approved by SIPAC to see people in any of the participating states. So I think the last I looked, there are 17 states participating. And so even though I'm licensed in Colorado, I could see someone in one of the participating states if, let's say, there's no one in their area who has that particular expertise or if they have a transportation barrier or really anything else that would prevent them from going in to see someone in their state. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for listeners to uh, to hook up with your practice if they need help? Where should they go? They can go to cbtdenver.com. Uh, that which stands, of course, for cognitive behavior therapy. And once they go to cbtdenver.com, they can see um, information about all of the psychologists who are in our practice, the types of conditions that we usually treat, um, the types of therapies that we usually do, and I would imagine that it would answer most of their questions. They could also, of course, call our intake line if they wanted to. You know, if they looked at the website and they said, this really seems like a good fit for me and I would like to have therapy here. And our intake phone number is right on the website. Well, very good. Nicole, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. So welcome. Thank you for having me as a guest. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.